episode 65 of the movie brats podcast i am carter and joining me as always is jonathan how are you doing jonathan i'm doing well we're really excited to be hearing about all the films premiering at the film festivals especially venice but we're going to be catching up with a handful of films that have come out earlier this summer uh the two we're going to be talking about today are both uh legally available to stream on various <laughs> platforms and i doubt i mean honestly one of them still playing in a lot of theaters yes uh, so it was one of the few actual sort of big hollywood feeling movies of the summer and um, like virtually the only one that's not a franchise film basically yeah um this movie is elvis directed by Baz lerman who has previously done romeo plus juliet moulin rouge and the great gatsby um been working for a long in 3D. time in 3d yeah but actually hasn't done a ton of movies i think less than 10 in his whole career actually um starring austin Butler. and the great gatsby was nine years ago it's been a while too yeah um tom hanks and uh olivia de Jong, who i had not seen in anything before this um it is about the life of Elvis Presley, as told by his manipulative and domineering manager, Colonel Tom Parker. It premiered, I think it was the opening film at the Cannes Film Festival this year on May 25th, um, was released out of wide, competition. Out of competition, yeah. It was their big Hollywood premiere, which they do sometimes. Um, released wide June 24th and has been available on HBO Max and HBO since last Friday. A Metacritic score of 64% and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 78%. Um, this was a very Baz Luhrmann movie. Um, what did you think about it? Well, I went to see Moulin Rouge for the first time a few years ago uh, before the pandemic. And I had not seen that film. And for the first about 10 minutes of the movie, I just, my toes started curling and I thought (laughs) I'm going to despise this movie, but I don't know what happened pretty shortly after that. I just got swept up in it and I really do love Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have a real soft spot for that film. Uh, Baz Luhrmann is one of those mad auteurs who I completely understand and respect people not liking. Like I was reading someone on Twitter saying that his style just like repels like one critic. He said his just style just repels me. Like his, (laughs) his form of cinema just like makes me nauseous. And I completely understand that. And I actually don't entirely understand why I am attracted to the movies of his that I like because on paper they seemingly are just so garish and over Mm -hmm. the top and kind of spectacle for spectacle's sake. And yet there's something so sincere about his gaudiness and his over the top kind of just wham, bam, thank you audience. I mean, it's just so kind of ridiculous. The way I describe the film Elvis 
It's like the spoof film Walk Hard, the one that starred John C. Riley. Mm-hmm. It's like if Walk Hard snorted a giant Scarface table of cocaine <laughs> and just went crazy for two hours and 39 minutes. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I could easily pick apart the movie. You know, I don't think that I've ever been someone particularly bothered by whether something's historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a big whopping, you know, kind of standard, but Baz Luhrmannized biopic, I quite <laughs> enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, we've almost gotten to the like oversaturation point of these music biopics in recent years, starting with, I mean, it obviously started with like Walk the Line and Ray and there were probably a couple, I mean, Coal Miner's well, Daughter goes back a really long time. Right. There's um, always, since the beginning of cinema, pretty much there's been, or at least since sound cinema, there's yeah. been music biopics. There used to be ones like the Al Jolson story. <laughs> yes, uh, but we're going there, way back. <laughs> there's, you know, the ones that are kind of the main ones that walk hard spoofs are like Ray, Ray. Walk the Line that, yeah. you know, came out around 20 years ago. And some of those films are quite good, but they kind of got stuck the cookie in cookie cutter formula. to a certain extent. Right. Like, I, I think moments, both of like, those, this is the first time he's in the recording studio. This is when like he's discovered. This is when he starts taking drugs. This is when he starts cheating on his wife and everything goes wrong, which all this does sort of follow to a certain extent. But I guess in a lot of ways, that's just sort of out of the way of a lot of musicians goes like it's not like that's disingenuous to a lot of these musicians story, actually, that, you know, a lot of people do have a hard time dealing with fame and turn to drugs and are overexerted and sort of move away from the person they were when they started out. Um, but I, think I guess what- the I guess the best biopics, what they do is, you know, a lot of musicians have a fairly similar trajectory. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the tropes that are in a lot of these films, but it's the artistry uh, and the way the story is told by the director yes. that can make or break a film. Like, I think we both agree Bohemian Rhapsody was a pretty flat Uh, it's like a wikipedia page brought to life right and part of that was that it had two directors you know brian Mm -hmm. singer got fired or let go or whatever happened Mm -hmm. uh but this one is undoubtedly from the mind the vision of baz lerman yes and also the framing device of it almost being as much about colonel tom parker as it was elvis presley i thought was a very interesting approach to it and you know, sort of provides the uh, justification for things not necessarily being as they actually might have been historically, because it's all skewed from this perspective of someone who's giving his version of the story and why he isn't the devil that some people seem to think he is. Although even in his own version of the story, he comes across pretty bad. Um, Oh, and I think that the casting of Tom Hanks is better than his actual performance, which I saw someone say, it's like he's playing a villain from the 1960s Batman TV series. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I think that's kind of how he is to a lot of people. Like in big Elvis fans, like see him as like the devil. Like he's like, you know, this sort of life-sucking leech who just like, you know, took this beautiful star and absolutely like sucked all the life out of him. so I think and in I, some I ways think he is kind of, of a pantomime villain. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting casting having Tom Hanks, who's like, you know, America's um, nice everyone, guy. yeah, everyone loves him. You know, oh, he couldn't do anything wrong to Elvis, but yeah. that's what you know. He was behind the scenes manipulating him. <clears throat> but I, I, I don't think Tom Hanks is good. His, in this. No, it's it's kind of embarrassing. But I, in a way, I admire the swing. I admire yeah. that. You know, I listened to an interview with him recently on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, and the host was pointing out that people think that he only plays these good guys, you know, playing real life people or Mm -hmm. just the America's dad or this great guy. But there's been a number of films where he played a villain or he, you know, took a dramatic swing and was playing against type or Mm -hmm. wasn't just playing kind of the Jimmy Stewart, normal every man. And I admire, especially at this point in career, I feel like he's actually kind of adventurous in some of the choices he makes. But I mean, I think certainly the real uh, performance to talk about is Austin Butler, who yes. is um, magnetic. Yeah. He's incredible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that there's been a billion people that have played Elvis or certainly impersonated him yes. uh, since his death. But there's something just so electrifying about watching him on screen. I mean, you know, it's it's like it's not ever that you really just completely forget it's a performance. Mm-hmm. But Elvis was giving a performance. It's almost like yeah. the way we felt about Kristen Stewart and Spencer. And Spencer, that yeah. Part of their they were giving a performance to the public to a degree their whole life. That's sort of I think what they're trying to get across in the upcoming Marilyn Monroe biopic. While we're on the subject of biopics, is. I think that's sort of the key theme of it is that Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe are different people and you're just sort of public facing you and there's the private you. And I think Austin Butler sort of towed that line really, really well. One of my favorite scenes in this is when he was sort of first courting, what's his wife's name? Um, Priscilla. The first- Priscilla. Yeah. When he's in the army and they're just like listening to records together. I thought that was a really, really nice scene. Um, and I thought she did a really good job of bringing some humanity to this. And I don't, the biggest thing for me about this movie is like, you know, you're aware of Elvis sort of since birth as like an American cultural icon. But I don't think I've ever listened to like a whole Elvis album. Um, I've never watched a whole Elvis movie. So despite sort of being aware of him, I don't really know really much about him at all. I just sort of knew he was in Vegas for a while. He got fat and, you know, he died on the toilet. It's sort of all I knew about him. So I thought that, you know, the running time could be daunting and it might seem unnecessary, but there's just so much to pack in. And I think for, you know, people of our generation and people younger, which I, I do think this movie sort of seemed marketed and geared towards like a younger sort of TikTok crowd to a certain extent, um, that I think it did do a good job of just sort of conveying the importance of Elvis as a cultural icon. And especially his rise in the 1950s and how sort of radical he would have felt when he first came out. And then how sort of, (laughs) you know, lazy and comfortable he he got during his Hollywood phase. And then, you know, the whole Vegas thing. It was just I it was all to me, it was all sort of relevatory because I know very little about him as a historical person. Yeah, I mean, he's basically fucking the audience, you know, (laughs) he's having sex with the audience. Yeah, I mean, I. I actually have seen the John Carpenter directed TV miniseries. Oh, the Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. And um, that 
is a little longer, but not too much longer. Cause I mean, it was like, I don't know, three hours or something. I'm not sure exactly how long, but uh, this movie's two hours and 39 minutes with the mm-hmm. end credits. And um, I saw it in a the theater and I enjoyed it. I think that a lot of the people that went to see it too were baby boomers or older people that grew up listening to his music. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a blending of a standard biopic with the, <laughs> ADD TikTok kind of aspect where I thought some of the performance honestly I was watching the movie and I got a little distracted but I had to stop myself because it's one of those films I think this is true for a lot of Baz Luhrmann's films and certain types of films these days I think that like 95% of the shots in this film are five seconds or less like sincerely (laughs) some some are even like less than like one or two yeah Um, and I think that the movie for me saying it feels like it's you know snorting a giant pile of cocaine (laughs) in the second half it does slow down to some degree especially in comparison to the first half and there's actually scenes uh where the camera isn't like just zooming through vegas you know and you know just you know flipping upside down filming (laughs) an iv drip you know there's there's some really kind of uh drug induced which i guess fits elvis because of yeah. the drug problems he had but there is this just really heightened just just out, kind of out of control you know but that kind of fits elvis you know part of elvis's lifestyle yes. is just so over the top and so glitzy well in that way it was very um i guess uh expressionistic sort of biopic where it wasn't necessarily just like uh, I mean, just trying to give you his life. It was kind of trying to give you the experience of being Elvis to a certain extent, or at least right. the experience of being someone in the time, seeing Elvis do all this stuff. Um, I mean, for me, the thing that captures that the best was it's pretty early on in the movie. It's a concert he does in Memphis, um, which I think is one of his early concerts. And they do a really good job of like mixing in still photos of, the photographers taking pictures of him from all these sort of different angles and also like this very stylized cutting of the performance and the crowd and um, all the sort of people who know something like terrible is about to happen because this like energy Elvis is giving off is just like causing mayhem in the crowd and people don't know how to handle this, this just like lightning bolt of a musical performance that they're seeing in front of them. I thought that was uh, for me, the best scene in the movie. And I, like you, I have never actually seen any film with Elvis. Um, and I've certainly heard his music. But I think a lot of people these days, it's like they may have a greatest hits, yeah. you know, CD or a, their grandparents own or something. <laughs> right. But uh, I think that he is, he's, he's almost like the Beatles. It's like, you don't really remember. Like it's if the Beatles introduced. was one guy, almost it's. Yeah, it's well, kind of nuts. It was, and it's you know the generation before the Beatles, and it's but it's like you don't even really remember being introduced or hearing, hearing it about for the first it. time. It's like yeah. it's just ever present in American culture so so much. Yeah, but yeah, I enjoyed the movie. I think that um, I mean, I, I <laughs> Baz Luhrmann's style wins me over you know in against my better judgment at times Uh uh-huh i mean it is i mean i do get really tired of there's so many movies these days where it just feels so cgi and it just feels so kind of like what it actually on screen right now was actually filmed in real locations and how much of this is 
but there's something kind of it's like so heightened and over the top that it kind of it kind of works the cg kind of accept it right um, it's like not yeah. real it's not supposed to be reality really it's sort of like a dream that's happening in front of you yeah in a weird way it reminds me almost of the wachowski speed racer like it's just like oh, yeah? so can be colored and heightened that you kind of just are enveloped in the world you just uh, sort of accept it, the mood that it's putting out and have to ride its wavelength right i mean i had basically only seen knew of austin butler from his brief scenes in once upon time in hollywood but mm-hmm. he was like a nickelodeon kid wasn't he or Disney yeah Channel. he was in uh something like a prequel to sex in the city i think but wasn't um, he it wasn't he either nickelodeon or disney channel there, i mean kid? we're gonna talk about a movie in a future episode with a lot of nickelodeon kids it seems like everybody is who's like a young actor these days basically Alex um, Wolf, you know, he was the Naked yeah, Brothers like band, right? Pretty much everybody. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was, or at least like Disney or something like well, that. Well, I mean, even, even like Ryan Gosling and Justin Timberlake, exactly, were Musketeers, yeah. right? Britney yeah. Spears. But yeah. So, so I wouldn't be surprised. But so, so we, both, HBO Max. we both like this. Actually, yeah. and surprised actually by how much we liked it. I mean, that's at least the case for me. Yeah. It's not as good as the best bio music biopics I've seen, but it's certainly there's many like Bohemian Rhapsody that are much worse. Yeah. And the the Baz Luhrmann-ness of it, while some people think that it's like too much and he kind of ruins the subject matter, I think if it wasn't for the Baz Luhrmann-ness of it, this movie really wouldn't have a lot to offer. But because it's so stylized and dreamlike and and different that it really, you know, feels like a movie about someone as important as Elvis and trying to sort of make you feel like what it would have been like to be him or to be in the crowd at one of his early performances or his Vegas performance. So I thought the expressionistic style of it was, was very fitting for the subject matter. Right. And I would rather watch a mad auteur like M night Shyamalan or Michael Bay, even doing their thing unadulterated on their own terms and it being awful than seeing just a really bland by the numbers. This happened, you know, biopic or franchise movie. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, you know, as so I, I really do truly love Moulin Rouge. And I think that Elvis is one of his of his few films he's made is one of his better films. I certainly think it's, I did not like The Great Gatsby. No, neither did but, I. Uh, but there's never they've never seemed to have made a good film of that. But yeah, <laughs> no. I, I, do, I do recommend. I mean, Elvis would have been too much maybe in 3D. The Great. Oh, Gatsby yeah. I think that would have caused some people to like puke. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> but yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, Our I next topic up. is uh, quite different in its style and its subject matter than Elvis and also the sort of hoopla around its release. This was very much one that went under the radar for probably most people, even if they follow movies. Um, it is Benediction, directed by Terrence Davies, who um, you I know are a big fan of, but I have not seen any of his other movies, um, which include The Long Day Closes, uh, The Deep Blue Sea, and Sunset Song, which I know is one of your favorite movies of 2016 or 2015 when it came out. Um, it was my favorite film of the year it was released in the U.S. Uh, starring Jack Loden, uh, Peter Capaldi. Um, sorry. Uh, Simon Russell Beale, well-known stage actor, and Jeremy Irvine, who I really only knew from War Horse. Um, it is the story of Siegfried Sassoon, an English intellectual who joined the army in the First World War, full of patriotism and idealism, 
but is mentally and emotionally scarred by the horror of the mechanized and needless slaughter. We follow his life as he becomes a famous anti-war poet, a society figure who has affairs with famous men of his time, despite the illegality of homosexuality in Britain at the time, and ultimately a bitter and dissatisfied older man. Uh, It premiered originally September 12th, 2021, so almost a year ago, at the Toronto International Film Festival and was released wide in the U.S. June 3rd, 2022. A Metacritic score of 81 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 94. Um, like Elvis, this was a sort of different approach to the biopic. but And that's where the comparison stopped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we have actually Siegfried Sassoon's played by two different people. Jack Loden when he's younger and Peter Capaldi, who I think people would know from In the Loop or um, Doctor Who. Um, But it sort of jumps between these two time periods. But also something I thought it did really, really well was including uh, Siegfried Sassoon's poetry, which it does in voiceover, as we sort of see, I think newsreel is sort of the style. I don't know if it actually is newsreel or if it was like- No, it is. It I is, listened okay. to an interview with Davies and he said that no, no matter how accurate or harrowing a recreation he could have made, he felt like the actual footage from the time was th- the most powerful. And that's why yeah. he didn't recreate any actual battle scenes. He just had actual footage from the film. Of like the aftermath and you know bodies and all this sort of mechanized slaughter. Um, and it's sort of playing with the voiceover of Jack Loden reciting mostly Siegfried Sassoon's poetry, but in one segment, it was a Wilfred Owen poem, who's probably the most famous of the English war poets, uh, who's a character in this movie, which was some of my favorite parts of this because I'm a big fan of Wilfred Owen. Uh, I loved seeing him actually depicted on film. It's not something I ever expected I would have seen, Um, but uh, I really like this. And you basically recommended this to me it was a movie i had heard about but wasn't really dying to see but then you said it was basically like your favorite movie of the year so far right yeah and that remains uh true to today in september yeah i'm a big fan of terrence davies i've seen a number of his movies uh he's a gay british auteur writer director all of his films are period pieces This Mm -hmm. is his second film in a row that's a biopic of a poet. His previous one was A Quiet Passion with Cynthia Nixon playing Emily Dickinson. Um, And I had The Deep Blue Sea as one of my uh, top 10 films the year it came out in the U.S. Rachel Weitz would have been my pick for Best Actress. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sunset Song was my number one favorite film the year it was released in the U.S., And like this one yet again, premiered it the previous year at a film festival, but so far it's my number one film of the year. Mm -hmm. I just think it's exquisitely made on every level. You know, it's beautifully shot. The acting is exceptional. It's so intelligently written. It's one of those films where I don't understand every reference and that makes me feel good because it's not (laughs) insulting the audience's intelligence. It's actually Uh even smarter than I am. And it's really emotional and tragic, but not at all in a soapy, melodramatic, 
typical biopic way like mm-hmm. it earns its emotions and the uh not to give anything away even though there's not really like spoilers with a film like this but <laughs> the the final scene of the movie is pretty uh kind of it, it really packs a punch the, yeah. the last scene in the movie um and i think that it manages uh, to be a fairly standard biopic in some ways and that you learn quite a bit of information about his life you mm-hmm. see his relationships you hear his story but it's told in a reflective way where part of the film is the older version of him you know you see him as a young man you see him as an old man and you're kind of seeing not just his life but how his life you know how your choice as a young person yeah you as an old person and like I think one of the most interesting scenes is where he's sitting in the church and it changes from him to a young man to an old man and Mm -hmm. you know it's just it's a really beautiful film it's um it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea I mean you could say oh it's like a masterpiece theater you know (laughs) something your 90 year old grandmother would watch on PBS but it's just like or you know, it's a really strong movie. Well, the performances are so much better than what you get on PBS. This is like the best acted movie I've seen in a really long time, actually. Everybody is perfect. Jack Loden is someone I'd seen in smaller roles in a lot of movies. He's uh, in a pretty small but key role in Dunkirk as a pilot who gets shot down. Um, I feel like Dunkirk is like to British cinema of recent years to what Black Hawk Down was to American <laughs> cinema 20 years ago and that like everyone is in that movie. Yeah, like, we're going to watch in 20 years and be like, oh my God, that guy was in it. This guy was and, in it. Um, also, uh, even more recently, he was in one of the episodes of Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Oh, okay. And uh, he, yeah, he's been in a lot of uh, period pieces. He, um, there is an Apple Plus TV series called Slow, Slow Horses. Horses with Gary yeah. Oldman that he is uh, one of the lead actors in. But yeah. yeah, he's just he's the he's in it more than the older version. It yes. certainly focuses on him as a young man. But yeah, I just um, he's incredible. Um, he's just incredible. If like if I could just give him an Oscar right now, I would without even really seeing any of the performances from this year. I thought he was that good and some really good supporting performances to Jeremy Irvine, who I think I've really only seen in War Horse like 10 years ago. Um, was fantastic as Ivor Novello, who at the time was like, you know, the most famous person in Britain, but has sort of been lost in the sort of cultural memory. No one really ever thinks about Ivor Novello now, unless you're watching Gosford Park, in which he features as a character, or, or watching The Lodger, one of the early Alfred Hitchcock movies in which he stars. But um, that was one of my favorite aspects of this movie, is just capturing uh, the sort of interwar years of Britain and the uh, especially this sort of gay scene because it's one of those things where people sort of knew people who were gay, but as long as you weren't so upfront about it, you sort of were allowed to live your life, but it still was illegal and people were being arrested. Um, It's like you could be gay around the right people, but you had to be secretive and you had to be stealth about how you act and you know where you went and how yes you and it, it does a really good job of just showing what that would do to a person's psyche and you know how he's just sort of yearns to like live like a fulfilling sort of normal life but the the time he lives in doesn't really allow him to do that 
And the fact that he stays with that awful, awful man, it's like, well, it's like the only man I may be able to get. You <laughs> yeah, know? basically, yeah. <laughs> Rather be with a man who's despicable than not have a male lover. You know, uh-huh. it's hard to understand why he would be with him. What's yes. the character? What you know? He's another uh, poet. Um, it's he? Stephen Tennant, um, who wasn't necessarily a poet. I, if you if you've ever seen um, *Brides Had Revisited*, he's sort of the basis of the Sebastian Flight character. Um, right. It's one of those things where, you know, in Britain, when there was like landed gentry, you sort of were allowed to not really do anything. But as long as you were like an interesting person and attractive, you sort of got by just as sort of like a socialite. And that's that's sort of what he is. He's like kind of an actor, but not really kind of an artist, but not really. He's just sort of like an interesting, attractive young man. Right. The uh, perhaps Kardashian of his day, basically, yeah. <laughs> well, um, anything would be worse than comparing someone to a Kardashian, but <laughs> uh, he's not that awful. But uh, no, I yeah, I just think that I'm like I said, I'm a big fan of Terrence Davies. He's one of those directors who it's like really early in the movie, you just kind of relax because you just know you're in the hands of a master filmmaker. Yeah, it's just like every aspect of the filmmaking is just at a really high degree and one thing i mean the awards are stupid but like this movie will barely be seen it won't get any oscar nominations maybe some bafta nominations yeah uh the british academy but i just am kind of i just know that there'll be some shitty biopics based on true stories that will get a number of oscar nominations and i'll be like you nominate this but you don't (laughs) nominate benediction Well, I certainly agree with that sentiment. Well, we're going to take a very quick break and I think wrap up our thoughts on benediction before we move on to sort of a general discussion of biopics and some of what we think are some of the more interesting and worthwhile biopics to see if you have not seen one. So we will be back in just a moment. Benediction is no longer in theaters, but it is available to rent on basically every platform. Um, I rented it through DirecTV, um, but for $2.99, you can rent it basically anywhere. And for both of us, this is probably one of the highest movies we could recommend so far this year. So um, if you are interested in just seeing a really, really good movie with outstanding performances, um, I think this is one that you should definitely check out. Not Not the most uplifting of movies, but it's not like depressing either, would you say? I would say it's like the father in that it's a heavy film, but its artistry and its performances are so strong that you feel pr- almost privileged to have seen it because yeah. it's just such a great, it's just such a, a, a great uh, work of cinema that it's it's a refreshing film. It's like it's heavy, but it you don't like trudge out of the movie feeling like, gosh, that was a chore to sit through Uh it's just it's it's just such a well done film and i do think that you don't have to know anything about siegfried sassoon you don't have to have seen any films by terence davies previously and you honestly don't really have to be interested in world war one or poetry it's just a film that is just extremely well done on every level so i highest recommendation by my definitely my number one film of the year before it's like pre all these kind of award season films coming Festival out. Movies. Yeah. Uh, so far this year, it's my number one. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I haven't really given too much thought about 
where I'm going to actually like rank stuff at the end of the year, but I could very much imagine this being high because um, like you said, it's one of those movies where afterwards you just sort of feel privileged for, for having seen it and thankful that uh, it exists in the world and um, makes me want to seek out Terrence Davies movies because I'm a, I'm a big fan of period pieces. I'm a big fan of uh, British cinema. So it seems like it would basically be right up my alley. Um, yeah, I um, I and you can thank me for recommending it. To yes, you and I, thank you. <laughs> hopefully the audience will thank me if they haven't seen the movie. And I bet a lot of them haven't even heard of the movie. So. Yeah, probably not, um, especially because there was such a long time between its sort of festival release and when it actually came out uh, in the US. I think it came out in Britain a good deal before it ended up coming out, uh, which was this summer um, and probably didn't play in a whole lot of theaters for very long. But um just sort of biopics in general. These were two biopics which sort of fit the mold of what you would consider a biopic to be in that it is focused on a single subject and tries to present information about this person's life while also um, sort of expressing how this person would have interacted with the period they lived in and sort of what it would have felt like to a certain extent to be that person. Um, would you say that that's generally what biopics try to achieve? And I think that one of the aspects too is that it doesn't just tell the person's story. It, it kind of tries to explain why it's important to tell the story. Yes. And also I think a number of them are commenting not just on the time the person lived, but why is it relevant to today? To now, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that Elvis, you could say, is, you know, not, not that there weren't really popular musicians before him, but he was kind of uh, a he major a turning point and celebrity. You yeah. know, he's like one of the first, you know, you could say there was Al Jolson, you know, there were certainly what? really popular singers, but he was kind of the first. Yeah, like, it was more star. actors. Actors, I think, had that sort of space in the cultural sort of you know, firmament that people would read magazines about actors' personal lives. But um, I think like Sinatra was sort of one of the first front-facing musicians. I remember this about from my history of rock class that for a long time, the singer, while being part of the band, wasn't necessarily like the draw. They were just another person in the group. But I think with people like Sinatra and sort of people in the 40s sort of started being like, the singer became a bigger part and Elvis is the person who like takes that to another stratosphere I think around the same time as Sinatra but Sinatra appealed I think a little more to older people maybe and Elvis was the first one to really get like teens and right young I adults. remember I remember one of my dad's friends talking about uh my father being one of the few people that were younger, like college age, that was a big fan of Sinatra. And oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of his friends were like, oh, you know, he's, you know, your parents' music. But he was, you know, ahead of the curve because like nowadays it's really cool to like Sinatra. And he really was one of the great singers of his yeah. time. So uh, it was more typical for people to be fans of Elvis and, uh, you know, a little bit later, but, you know, things like the Beatles, uh, the British invasion. But yes. uh you know, and interestingly, you know, Sinatra and Elvis were both had film careers. Yeah. Sinatra, I think, much more interesting one. Yes. You know, I I shouldn't say that because we haven't actually seen any of Elvis's movies, but I think most people think No, that. but I think that says something in itself that two people who are obsessed with movies haven't necessarily felt like seeking out Elvis movies. 
And one of the things the film shows, I mean, I, I, and I knew this uh, outside of the film that he could have had a more interesting career, but it was yet another example of uh, the Colonel holding yeah. him back. Like he could have, I mean, he aspired to do more serious. To be like James films. Dean, I think was his icon. Right. And, you know, one, just this totally random bit of trivia, something you would not expect. He was a big Monty Python fan. Elvis. <laughs> and he, <laughs> well, really he was enjoyed... a big drug guy. So that's not surprising. <laughs> well, he uh, really liked Monty Python and the Holy Grail, supposedly, and watch it over and over again. Oh, wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, I will say the only Elvis film I've seen really besides there, well, there's the television miniseries. Have you ever heard of Bubba Hotep? Oh yeah, that's the uh, what's his name? The guy from the Evil Dead movies, Bruce um, Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Yeah. yeah, this is the elevator pitch. Elvis didn't actually die. He got tired of his fame and career, and he switched places with an Elvis impersonator back in the seventies. And it's the impersonator that died. The real Elvis went on performing as an impersonator, and at one point falls off a stage and breaks his hip. At the start of the movie, he is an elderly man, the actual Elvis Presley in a retirement home in Texas. There is a black man played by Ozzie Davis who claims that he is JFK, but they dyed him that color after the assassination. And a soul-sucking mummy comes to the retirement home and tries to steal the souls of the people that live at the retirement home. And the real elderly Elvis and the black man who says he's JFK team up to, to fight. fight him. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a really good movie and surprisingly moving. And it's a really, I really, really like that movie. So not for every Elvis fan, but it's mm. an interesting uh, footnote in the cinematic depictions of Elvis. Well, let's, before, before we did a little for too long, get on to our three biopics. There may be some crossover. I'm not sure because we haven't revealed these to each other, but um, I doubt it kind of. <laughs> I'll go ahead and start with mine. I think it's one of probably the most famous biopics ever made a best picture winner but I don't think too many people now see it because of its running time and its subject matter, which has made it, I think, more controversial from a sort of surface view than it really actually is in sort of glorifying colonialism. It is Lawrence of Arabia, directed by David Lean, starring Peter O'Toole from 1962. Um, I think this is a very unique approach to the biopic, considering the first scene shows its subject's death and the second scene sort of shows his memorial. And the rest of the movie is sort of a coming to terms with this person as a historical figure, whether he's someone we should admire or whether he's someone we should sort of um, see as an instrument of empire and colonialism. And I think from a surface perspective, you could sort of see this as a British movie made by British people sort of glorifying a British war hero who sort of claimed to be fighting for sort of Arab independence, but actually contributed to their further subjugation by the British Empire. Um, but I think the movie takes a much more nuanced and skeptical approach to uh, T.E. Lawrence's heroism and sort of the glorifying of his memory um, by giving you these sort of alternate voice characters, one of whom is an American journalist who sort of from the beginning acknowledges that uh, T. Lawrence is like a glory hunter 
and sort of sees himself as the main character in this sort of epic story that he's trying to sort of write for himself and sort of exploiting this sort of person's mad quest for heroism for his own gain by sort of chronicling his rise. Um, And also the character who Omar Sharif plays, who initially is very skeptical of Peter, of sorry, of the Lawrence's desire to sort of integrate himself into the Arab community and eventually sort of sees him as someone who could unite them and sort of achieve things for them as a people, but eventually becomes extremely disillusioned by uh, T. Lawrence's behavior and sort of comes to see that he's sort of making sort of Arab culture something like vulgar and barbaric sort of compared to um, sort of what the English would see as proper behavior in that uh, while T. Lawrence thinks he's sort of valorizing sort of Arab culture, he's actually making it seem more alien and barbaric and is really sort of leaning into the things that (laughs) people like Omar Sharif's character would sort of not like to uh, sort of emphasize as part of their culture that T. Lawrence like sort of makes much more present than, uh, than he'd like it to be. And I think that those sort of characters lend a critical eye to this movie that I think other biopics might have just sort of had a rollicking adventure story of this English guy in, in the desert. But I think it actually has a much more critical eye to T. Lawrence's role as a sort of colonial agent than, than the sort of average biopic would. Um, I know you're not as big of a fan of this movie as I am, but. Well, no, no, I, I, it's, <laughs> it's a movie I've seen once and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it's been, you know, 15 years probably since I've seen it. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you have a habit of even if a movie is four hours long, you'll, if you like it, you'll watch it over watch and over it. and over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, and to me, one of the things that stands out about the movie is that it's one of the great examples of a film being, it, you know, it's, it, besides being a biopic, it's also this big sprawling historical epic and it balances that beautifully, masterfully with being a character study, really. Yes. And that there are these, you know, as sweeping and majestic as there ever has been, you know, David Lean is, you know, the widescreen photography, the yes. battle scenes, this the scenery. But there's also, you know, half the movie is quiet, intimate scenes of people talking in a room. And yeah. <laughs> one of the great shots, one of the great transitions, the great cuts in film history is the scene where uh, Lawrence blows out a, uh, a match and it cuts to a shot of the setting sun and the landscape. And it's like mm-hmm. the comparison of this intimate moment with this vast land, like one yes. man, you know, could have so much power and control and influence on a whole land, a whole country, a whole part of the world. Yeah, it's one, I, uh, I listened to the movies that made me podcast and Josh Olson has said that Every time the film has been released on a different uh, home video format, he's bought it. And he's yeah. never once watched it at home, though. He's oh, wow. only seen it, He's only seen it in theaters. And he says there's kind of a movie that, I mean, even if you have a really good television at home, projection, surround sound, yeah. if you have the opportunity ever. And I haven't. Have you ever seen it? In a yeah, theater? I saw it in 70 millimeter at a theater in Stanton, Virginia. And that was I think the second time I saw it, the first time I saw it on like a normal, like, you know, 35 inch TV. And you were sort of like, oh, that was all right. I don't really necessarily understand all the fuss, but you see it in 70 millimeter and it just 
blows you away and the four hours actually goes by really quickly right well i for my first pick and these are not at all ranked i'm not saying these are the three best but Mm -hmm. i'm also going to pick a 1960s film that is three hours plus it's going to be uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Andre Rubilov. Yep, uh, that's one I had also. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, so this was a film I saw for the first time in 2020 during the pandemic, and it was my favorite older film I saw that year. Um, I had seen actually just uh, very few of Tarkovsky's films. He only did a few anyway. He died young. Yeah, like 50s. seven or eight, I think. And... Um, this is my favorite of his movies and I just was in awe watching it in, you know, we talked about, you know, kind of feeling privileged watching Benediction. I just was just kind of slack jaw. I mean, like my jaw was on the ground watching the movie because it's just so masterful. The camera work just, you know, talking about, I mean, it's a, it's a master artist making a film about another master artist. It's a biopic of the 15th century Russian painter, Andrei Rublev. Who we and, never actually see paint in the movie. <clears throat> right. Like we never see the dude bull in the Big Lebowski. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it now a three hour and three minute black and white biopic about a Russian icon painter from the 15th century may seem like a slog. I would say it is a movie you really got to watch when you're in the mood for a serious long art house movie but i found it enthralling like it draws you in like from the very beginning and um there is a section towards the end the film is told in sections where there's a lengthy section where there's the you see the creation of a massive bell yes you know like ringing bell and it's just an incredible you know production in the sense of seeing the production of the bell being made but also you know thinking of it actually being made for the film we're watching yeah and honestly it's a movie where it almost the whole movie is in black and white but towards the very end there's this segment that's like 10 or 15 minutes long where yeah. you see actual paintings of rublev in color and i didn't even realize this when i was watching it at first uh but about halfway through the sequence, I realized my hand was like clasped on my chest. And I was like, just like, <gasps> you're having a physical like reaction so, to this. <laughs> I was just like, it was like having kind of a religious experience. It's just yeah. so kind of overwhelming. It's, it's a, it's a big hunk of movie, but it's just not at all. You know, it's for a movie that's long and that it's a period piece there's something so, and, and also there, there's a lot of kind of, you're in the mud, you're in the snow, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of outdoors, but there's something so graceful and <clears throat> there's not a, you know, it's, it, it, it's like Benediction. This is not a light movie in any <laughs> sense of the word, but there's this, there's kind of this majesty to the film yeah. where it doesn't to me it's not a slog it's no. totally engrossing and i was just i've only seen it that once so far but i i would love to see this in a theater so yes you can praise it too it's i i've said so much but i love well, it well it's also interesting as a biopic because you know it, it's the titular character and it's you know a, a, ostensibly about andre rublev but 
Andre Rublev doesn't really do much in the movie. He's more sort of a spectator of the events happening around him. Um, like I said, you, you never see him paint. You hardly ever really hear him talk about his painting. Um, you just know for a while during it that he's not painting anymore, that he's like giving it up because I guess he doesn't feel as close to God as he once did. And it's a hard time sort of making these beautiful images in a world that he sees as like horrible and um, terrible, terrible things are happening all around him. Um, like I sort of, I think I've mentioned this about a racer head in previous uh, episodes. I want to hear that, this connection. Well, and that that was a movie where I knew it was great and I had heard about it, but I had no idea sort of what it would look like or what it would feel like when I was watching it. And it actually felt and looked much different than I expected it to be. And that's very much how Andre Rublev was, where, uh, you know, you expect a long black and white 60s movie about Russia in the 15th century. You expect it to be sort of boring and look a certain way, but it it's like gorgeous. And like you mentioned, the sort of camera work and the direction and the way characters move in and out of the frame is like, it's, it's like, like balletic, and, but it's also yeah. haunting. Yeah. It's like such a yeah. mood that I've never really experienced it in any other movies. So like Eraserhead, I thought it was a very singular cinematic experience that I had a hard time imagining what it would feel like and what it would look like and ended up not really being like what I expected it to be, but really surprised by how much I liked it. Yeah, I just think that it's one, I mean, it is an, like you say, an art film. And in a weird way, like I've seen Solaris, I've seen Mirror, I've seen Stalker. Stalker yeah. I actually think this is probably his most accessible film. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are aspects of it that are elliptical and you have to kind of, you know, like what is the man with the balloon at the opening of the movie supposed to mean? But yeah. it's, it, you know, I won't say the film is straightforward, but um, it it's it's certainly not as cerebral as a lot of his other movies are. No. It's more, uh, you know, it, it's one of those movies where scene for scene, it's like stuff is happening and like you understand what's happening. It's just kind of the artistic and kind of metaphor of it. You yeah. got to have to kind of piece together to the end. Like, okay, what are we saying? Yeah. That I, it would be an extremely long double feature because this one's just over three hours. But an interesting film to pair it with would be The Seventh Seal. Oh, yeah. Because that film is also, you know, there's actually a scene in that movie where you see a painter doing the mural. And there's this debate about, you know, what is the purpose of art? Should it depict accurately human suffering or should we create entertainment that mm -hmm. distracts us and takes us away from the suffering of the world like what is the purpose of the yeah. artist i think that's one of the kind of the themes of andre rublev like yes. what is the purpose of this art well and also it's being made by an artist who lives in a very strict authoritarian regime in the ussr in the 1960s so it sort of acts as a commentary of the role of the artist in society and the purpose of art you know, and 15th century Russia, but also in 20th century Soviet Russia. Yeah, two um, Andres. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's it's one of the most interesting sort of multi-layered, beautiful to watch movies I've ever seen. But yeah, since well, that's on both of our lists, why don't you move ahead to, to your second one? Well, I have two music biopics that I wrote down. I'll talk about my first one. Perhaps you'll have a music biopic. Um, one of them is superstar the karen carpenter story 
This is a 43-minute film directed by Todd Haynes, who has done multiple uh, films you could consider music biopics. He did one that not doesn't have the characters named after David Bowie, but it's obvious that it's yeah. supposed to be pulling from that era with Velvet Goldmine. And he also did I'm Not There, the one with six different people playing Bob Dylan, yes. ranging from Heath Ledger and Richard Gere to Kate Blanchett. But I am going to be talking about his 1987 film, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which has not ever been officially released on home video because of music rights issues. The Carpenter family was not happy with it because it is a film that is told with Barbie dolls. <laughs> there are no actors in the film. And what is kind of remarkable about the movie is that it's quite funny but it's not at all mean-spirited or it, it actually is a very sympathetic look at Karen Carpenter and we how- suffered the with mean, a lot of mental health issues in her life, Well, right? bulimia, bulimia, yeah, yeah. anorexia. So she had uh, you know, eating disorders and the film is commenting on how the media and her own family you know, wanted to present her in a certain way and put their careers ahead of her well-being. And the film is actually really smart and it manages to be funny, but like you're not at all laughing down at her. It, yeah. You're kind of, you know, laughing at it, but it's, it's, it's actually a very sincere movie. It's this really incredible balancing act. And I was happy to hear in an interview recently with Entertainment Weekly um, that he actually got the short, you know, what is it, 43 minutes? It's not a feature really, but he got it restored uh, with the Sundance Lab. And it's, wow. he said that it's going to get a release sometime. It's going to, he said he has things he's working on right now, but that it will get an official release and it's beautifully restored. So I really recommend the movie, but wait until that restoration comes out because there's, <laughs> it's easy to see on Can you watch on it on YouTube? YouTube? Yeah, but it's really yeah. bad quality. The visuals are really bad. Like yeah. there's parts where there's um, uh, uh, written text on screen and you can barely read it. Um, oh, wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. The main problem uh, the it's music rights issues. They use yeah. actual Carpenter music and they didn't get the rights. And then the Carpenter family was not too happy <laughs> with the, not, I don't even know necessarily that it was because it's done with Barbie dolls as much as the depiction just of the other family members seemingly not caring about Using her, her for their own gains and stuff like that. Well, yeah. And, you know, not being concerned with her health and well-being as much as their careers but yeah. yeah superstar the karen carpenter story very interesting biopic done with barbie dolls but re wait for the restoration hopefully it will come <laughs> out i could imagine for example the criterion collection doing a todd haynes shorts yeah. collection like they did with the scorsese one a few years yeah. ago so i highly recommend that yeah um well my final one is not a musical biopic um, but is a biopic of a massive figure in 20th century American history. It is Patton, starring George C. Scott, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner from 1970. Um, Written by, winning his first Oscar. Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Um, a movie that I don't think quite has the same status now as it did 50 years ago, mostly because I don't think 
many people our age spend a lot of time thinking about George Patton. Um, but in the sort of post-war years, and especially during the war, Patton was such a massive, massive figure, the sort of public-facing part of the war, because he was one of the American generals who actually went out and won battles. Um, unlike the um, higher-ranking generals like George Marshall or uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who were much more logistically inclined and didn't actually command battlefield troops. Um, Patton was like the boots on the ground celebrity general um, who the American public like absolutely loved. But this movie gives us a perspective on him that's quite different than I think uh, the sort of patriotic American of the 1940s or 50s would have thought Patton about, which is sort of like a egotistical, narcissistic, maniac, warmonger who believes that he has been reincarnated multiple times and lived in the Napoleonic era and Roman Carthage and all kinds of crazy stuff. And this movie just so leans into the more eccentric and um, borderline insane aspects of Patton's character that, you know, you would not see in a sort of like chest pounding America first kind of movie um, that you would have seen in the forties or fifties. And, it's very much part of the sort of late 60s, 70s, new Hollywood sort of paranoid, skeptical version of America that you see, especially in the paranoid thrillers like Parallax View and Clute and stuff like that, but applies that sort of sensibility to a very famous American war hero. Um, you could say that it's kind of a bridge between the three-hour 60s war films like the yeah. longest day and battle the bridge, of the bulge yeah. and it's getting to the kind of morally complex character studies of the new hollywood era mixing yes. the two. yes definitely um i've never seen the movie so really to, oh my god i've yes. you're at least like aware of the iconic opening scene where he's standing in front of the american flag right right have you i i i've been listening but have you mentioned who plays him yeah george c scott who um Famously turned did not down accept the, Oscar. the best Oscar award. Yeah, so now it's at the uh, the Patton Museum, and uh, at VMI, which was his alma mater, the Virginia Military Institute. Um, this is, I don't think a super palatable movie because of its length, and I don't think many people would be familiar necessarily with a lot of the battles that Patton fought in, like in North Africa. And in Italy, especially, those are not necessarily aspects of the war that most people think about when you think about World War II. You think about like the Normandy invasion and, uh, you know, the final push towards Germany and stuff like that. But um, I think this movie does a really good job at painting Patton as a very complex figure, both in his own time, but also as a historical figure that we need to sort of reevaluate. Um, sort of with each generation because he represents such a particular time in America's history, but also a particular time in the history of uh, the world where war was something that really was glorified. And um, I don't think that's exactly the case anymore. And this is very much a movie that came out during Vietnam and has the sort of Vietnam era perspective on what war does to people and sort of the righteousness or the benefit of glorifying these sort of hyper-violent uh, egotistical people um, and you haven't seen it so you can't say too much about it but this is a movie I would really recommend um, as a biopic because it's one of the ones that does span a, a pretty large amount of time 
and tries to convey a lot of information about a his, uh, an important historical figure um, who isn't quite on the level of someone like Dwight Eisenhower. Um, but a Dwight Eisenhower biopic would be much, much more boring than one about Patton. Um, so I think this is a good entertaining movie for a cinephile, but might be difficult for the sort of average moviegoer to, to sit through for three hours. Um, but highly recommended by me. Yes, it's one that I've meant to see for years, but it's one of those, it's like oh, three hours long. I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so mine is about, and my last one is about as opposite of that as you can get because uh, <laughs> is Behind the Candelabra, the Liberace biopic. Ah, um, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, I have seen it. It is some yeah. of the most intense gay sex scenes I've ever seen in a, in a movie. Yeah, one of the things I admire about the movie is that Oscar winner Steven Soderbergh got Oscar winners Michael Douglas and Matt Damon to, you know, butt fuck each other very <laughs> graphically uh, on screen, uh, unapologetically. And like Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, it, uh, Behind the Candelabra is a very funny movie, but it's yes. not laughing down at Liberace. Um, I think that it uh, shows that he was truly a very talented performer and he had to, like in a weird way, benediction, he had to be careful about his personal life. He was, yeah. if anyone had eyeballs, was gay, even yeah. though back in the day, there were people that didn't really understand what that was, I think. They were just like, because, oh, he's just a showman. <laughs> yeah, when's he going to find his the right wife? Um, but the film, which, you know, what is it? A TV movie, a film, because in the US it premiered on HBO, but everywhere else in the world, basically it was in theaters in Europe, certainly uh, screened at the Cannes Film Festival. But it's uh, the last, one of the last things Steven Soderbergh did before he quote unquote retired, which didn't last <laughs> very long. Uh, but part of his problem, one of the reasons that he wanted to quit was because you got him an Oscar winner uh, and you had two of the biggest movie stars in the world and he went to basically every studio and they said that it, this is too gay and it won't make enough money. It won't be worth it to make it a film. And he went to HBO and they're like, we'll be happy to make it and won a bunch of television awards. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, Michael Douglas is one of those actors like Spencer Tracy where most of the films, he's playing Michael Douglas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in this film, he absolutely transforms into Liberace it's one of his best performances and both him and Matt Damon and I think this is also one of Matt Damon's best performances ever yeah. I think it's an underrated Matt uh, Matt Damon well, he, performance. in a lot of Soderbergh movies he, he plays against type like the informer um yeah it's, it's very not movie star roles that he takes in Soderbergh which I, I think are, is good for for him and his career overall Right. And I just think that the film, it, there's so many interesting uh, supporting performances. Rob Lowe is hilarious in a small role as a plastic surgeon who looks frightening with his facelift. Debbie Reynolds plays Liberace's mother. Um, and I think that it's, it's just incredibly entertaining movie. It's really funny. Uh, it has great performances and it's honestly uh, one of the best uh, music biopics uh, from this period of like the last 20 years, you know, mm -hmm. kind of starting with Ray and Walk the Line. Um, and, you know, I understand that some people would not jump at watching this super gay Liberace biopic. <laughs> 
but I think that if you're open to it, it's just a very entertaining movie with two of the best performances by those lead actors. And I think it's um, one of the just, I think it's one of the best things Soderbergh's done too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I highly recommend Behind the Candelabra. Uh, HBO TV movie, at least in the US, came out in 2013. So uh, I, 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 you really enjoyed it as a straight. You enjoyed it. Though. Yeah, yes. Well, and it's also one of those things like, uh, like Elvis, obviously not to the same extent because Liberace was not as big as Elvis, but he was a big, big cultural figure in his own right. lifetime. But he's not really someone people of our generation ever think about. No. I don't. Th- I don't think Liberace has great streaming numbers on Spotify. Um, no, but he, you know, he was an important figure, and it's just sort of interesting to understand him in his own time, and you know, the influence he would have had, and the, you know, front-facing cultural importance he would have had. Um, like he's very important to Las Vegas and stuff like that. So it's one of those biopics that does do a good job of giving information that most audience members probably would not be aware of um, and, te- right. and telling you about a historical figure that, you know, you don't really ever think about, but did have a big influence on America during his lifetime. Right. And it's a very personal look at his life, but it shows both the, you know, on it shows how he was as a performer on stage, but also what it was like behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just end by saying that uh, some of the films we're most looking forward to the rest of the year are biopics. My number one film I'm looking forward to is Blonde. Yeah. The, which just premiered at Venice, got wildly mixed reviews. Uh, some people think it's brilliant. Other people think that it is uh, further dehumanizing uh, Marilyn Monroe at since yeah. he's 17. Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, I don't know that you could call it a biopic, but The Fablemans is pretty much uh, yeah. Steven's. It's the uh, Muppet Babies version of Steven Spielberg's life, yeah. showing his early life. Uh, I don't. I mean, it's not Steven Spielberg. That's not the character name. Yeah, but it's very obviously very autobiographical. Um, well, not a biopic, but a music documentary that I think is going to be incredible. Moon Age Daydream about David Bowie is premiering at i think toronto it already premiered oh did it yeah it premiered like it can in may i think okay well it's being released it's in opening toronto real also. soon and yeah. it's, it was playing in imax soon yeah so i'm very, very that, doesn't, that, that doesn't count as a document it's a bad musician we've been talking about musicians. well i mean if we're going off i mean one of the very best reviewed films at venice is tar the one with Cape blanchette playing yeah. an orchestra conductor fictional character yes but uh, but yeah, Blonde is, you know, the one we're both very biopic. excited for. And we've been hearing about for a long, long time. It's had a very controversial production and release where for a while it seemed like Netflix was basically just going to bury it. Um, like that girl. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, just being uh, on some USB drive in a vault somewhere and no one will ever see it. But um, it comes out next week. Is that right? September 15th, it- I think. It, it opens in limited release in theaters next Friday. And then uh, the last Friday of the month, it will premiere on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, so, yeah. Some biopics to recommend. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I think The Benediction is one of the best movies I've seen this year. Um, available and to on- rent. Yes. Uh, and Elvis is on HBO Max. And 
I think just real quick, uh, we both recommended Ron Andre Rublev. You yes. recommended Lawrence of Arabia and, and Patton. Patton, and I recommend two music biopics: Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, Wait for the Restoration, which will hopefully <laughs> come out soon, and Behind the Candelabra, which should mm -hmm. be on HBO Max because it's an HBO movie. But none well, of you them. you never know with HBO Max now because they're literally just like erasing stuff from yeah. their streaming service. So watch it before they take it down. Yes. Um, but uh, thank you for listening. Uh, sorry for the long delay. I was battling uh, illness for quite some time. Um, but we should have a more regular recording schedule coming for this fall with more interesting movies being released and, uh, you know, all of the festival movies and Oscar contenders. So thank you for listening. And we will be back with you guys uh, in a shorter period next time. <laughs>